Father, we are so full of thanksgiving and gratitude for, to you for all that you've done for us, including revealing to us the truth in a written word that we can approach each Sunday and feast upon. And I pray, Father, that you would not only open your word to us in a clear and understandable way, Father, but that you would also use it instrumentally to affect our hearts and our minds and the way that we live. Lord, sanctify us in your truth. Your word is truth. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. So if you'd like to turn in your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 13 this morning. Matthew chapter 13. Statistics say that approximately 7.3 billion people are on our planet right now. And out of that population, 2.3 billion say they're Christians. 1.7 billion claim to be Muslim. 1.1 billion are Hindu. 979 million claim to be non-religious. 488 million are Buddhist. 671 million are of various ethnic religions, including Chinese and Asian religions of various kinds. And the last 103 million are listed as unknown. So if that's true, if 2.3 billion people in the world are Christians, that means that one-third of the entire world's population is bona fide, genuine Christians, children of God. So how many here believe that's true? One-third of the world's population. I I agree. I, I totally don't believe that. It's just not possible, guys. In fact, if you remove the cults and you take away many false churches, the number gets much smaller. But if you don't stop there, even out at that much smaller number, you have a percentage of people who attend the healthiest and most faithful congregations, yet they're still unrepentant or unregenerate. They're spiritually dead or spiritually deceived. So even out of a good church, you have those who do not truly believe. Even in in the midst of a place with godly fellowship and and biblical teaching, you have those who are unsaved, actually unaffected in a real sense by the truth. In fact, God's people, the true saints of God, have always been a minority throughout given history. When God brought the flood to the world, how many righteous people did he spare? Eight out of the whole world. How many did God call out of the land in Canaan? Abraham and his wife and Lot tagged along. That doesn't mean that there were no righteous men on the earth at all, but these were a minority of the peoples. Out of, uh, out of unbelief, most people partook in, in wickedness and idolatry. That was the norm on the world. So even the nation of Israel, the people set aside by by God to be his own people, those who were given the revelation of God, they had the temple, the sacrificial system, they had numerous other blessings. Even these people constantly rebelled in unbelief. 
During Elijah's ministry, he said to God, the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. God told him what? He said, I still have 7,000 who have not forsaken God and bowed the knee to Baal. 7,000 out of the entire nation of maybe what? Maybe millions? 7,000. What did, what did Paul say about the people of Israel? He said, not all who are descendants from Israel belong to Israel, and not all children of Abraham are, are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. In other words, he, being a descendant of Abraham did not mean that you were of the faith of Abraham. They thought it did, but it does not. And it's always been an issue of faith throughout human history. It's not simply identifying with the people of God. There were many Israelites, but only a small number of them truly loved God by faith. And it's been the same during the church era, even up to today. The church began as a small minority of the populace. In Acts chapter 1, there's how many in the upper room? 120. Out of all the ministering that Jesus did. And through the church, uh, though the true church grew rapidly by God's design and, and by his working, persecution kept it a very small number percentage-wise. It was a small number of people that truly loved Christ and were willing to sacrifice all for him. But beginning at the time of Constantine in the 4th century, you remember, if you remember your history, Christianity was made a very popular thing to identify with. Emperor Constantine identified himself as a Christian, and he made Christianity the official religion of Rome. And so for the sake of acceptance and being part of the social norms, people identified with Christianity. Virtually everybody in the Western society was a Christian. Unfortunately, true faith was still a minority. Corruption of the church and self-deception had simply abandoned uh, true Christianity for what was popular. So true saints could care less about acceptance in the society. They want Christ. They love Christ. They could care less whether the society accepts that or not. So in the 2,000 years since Christ, many have played Christian and identified with the church because that was what was done as a society. Many people have also come to be part of the church because of the social connections or a sense of being a part. They enjoy that. Or they go to church because they're part of a religion. It gives a sense that they are religious or uh, so that they can do well or they feel like they're not going to go to hell. So that, that would be a works-based faith, trusting in your own conduct and your connections to make you worthy. It's, it's an ideal that condemns one to hell rather than saving a person from it. What Jesus' parable today that we're going to read, what it, what it does is it, it rips away this false sense of security and a self-deception. It, it takes that facade away. And if one is able to hear, it can truly save to the other most. Hearing is a, is a big piece of this parable that we're going to read. 
in verse 19, when everyone hears, in verse 20, the one who hears, verse 22, the one who hears, verse 23, the one who hears. Everybody there was hearing it, but nobody was really hearing it. Very few were. Jesus says in verse 9, he who has hears to hear, let him hear. So today in our vernacular, we may say, listen up. Pay attention. Do you, do you hear what I'm saying? Listen to my words. These might be some of the ways we might reinterpret what that says. How many of you have you ever explained something to your children and they're not really paying attention to you? They're not listening. And you get a little frustrated and you get a stern voice. You say, listen to me. Pay attention. That's what he's saying. Jesus is saying, pay attention. To what kind of situation, uh, or to, to these kinds of situations where kids don't listen, my, my mom can attest, my grandfather used to always tell us as kids, turn up your hearing aid, you know. We didn't know what a hearing aid was. But Jesus is begging the people to open their ears, to listen, to hear. If you can truly hear and understand, you can have unshakable hope and life and fruitfulness. If you cannot hear or respond, you're doomed. That's the message. So let's look at our passage together. Chapter 13 of Matthew, and we're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to read the first nine verses. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. The great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. The whole crowd stood on the beach. And he said to them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on the rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil, but when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seed fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's start by looking at the setting. So the setting is important. It, it provides clear context for the passage. Without context, one can easily travel away from God's intent to whatever our minds imagine. So let's, it gives us some context here, so let's look at it. Verse 1 says, the same day Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea. The same day. What's the same day? It's the same day that you observe in chapter 12, the previous chapter. It's a very full, exhausting day. A day in which Jesus and his disciples are walking through the field, and he has to deal with the accusations of the Pharisees a day in which he walks into the synagogue, likely to teach the people. Jesus left there, and a crowd followed him out. Jesus began healing many, and a demon-possessed man was brought to him. Jesus drove out the spirit, and the Pharisees accused him of being demon-possessed. Then Jesus' mother and brothers came along to collect him. They thought he was out of his mind, and he had to deal with that. Remember, Matthew even, you read these two chapters, Matthew is giving us a couple of snapshots to look at, snippets. 
and information regarding a long and difficult day filled with continuous teaching, loads of healings, repeated confrontations, and demons and spirits, and confrontations with religious leaders. So it was a very, very exhausting day. The kind of constant activity that would cause most of us to fall over and collapse. But Jesus came out of the house, it says, likely Peter's house in Capernaum, and he sat down at the edge of the sea. Perhaps Jesus was teaching in the house, and huge crowds of people showed up, and it wouldn't fit in there, so he just went out on the shore to teach. We don't know. It, it doesn't specify. But for whatever reason, Jesus headed out of the house, and he went to the shore. Mark says that Jesus began to teach to them at this point, but crowds began to swell, it says. Luke, in his version of the, uh, of the parable of the sower, Luke adds that a great crowd was gathered and people from town after town came to him. People were gathering all around. And this is a massive group of people and it just kept swelling and swelling. The word was spreading and the masses of people kept growing and growing until there were great crowds of people along the shore. I'm absolutely certain anyone who serves in ministry is familiar with those extremely long days of constant ministering to people that leave you inexplicably drained. We all experience overwhelming days, but this kind of work uh, not only leaves you physically exhausted, but it leaves you mentally exhausted and even emotionally exhausted to where there's literally nothing left. There's a deep sense of care and concern, though, in Jesus that, that drives him to give everything beyond the limit. Jesus in the sitting had no break from his work. The great need was amassed in front of him, and he couldn't walk away. A bruised reed he would not break, and a smoldering wick he would not quench. Jesus was all about the work of the Father. Reaching the broken masses with the message of hope, and he would not turn them away. So it says he got into the boat and he sat down while the whole crowd stood on the beach. And, and Jesus told them many things in parables, it says. It, it would only take you a couple of minutes to read through chapter 12 and chapter 13, but I guarantee his preaching took a lot longer than what you read. He was there for a very long time, teaching, admonishing, what Matthew offers is only a small portion of what took place that day. So why is this context so helpful? Why, why is it helpful to think about that? Because Jesus is aiming this parable and his message at all the people who had come in contact with him throughout that day. Everybody. Everyone that was healed, everyone he taught, all those he confronted and rebuked, all those who were standing on the beach were part of this parable. They were part of it even his closest disciples. Everybody sitting on that beach was part of the story. And as an extension, we all fit into this parable as well, every one of us. In fact, all of humanity fits into the parable of Jesus. So let's look at what he said. Let's look at the content of the parable. First, it says, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. 
This is very understandable. He, he was a master at taking what was simple part of everyday life that they all understood and connected truth to it so that it was absorbed. But this was very common. You had m- multiple fields. If you saw the Jezreel Valley, it was filled with, with crops. And in between these fields, there would be a path. We see this even out here, what's left of our prairie. We, we can see roads surrounding the different fields, and we drive around it. Well, they didn't drive. They had paths that they walked on. So in between all these different crops, they would walk on these paths. And as everyone kept walking and walking and walking, it turned to basically like concrete. It was impenetrable. I mean, it was constantly packed down. This is exactly what's happening in chapter 12, in fact, when Jesus has the confrontation with the Pharisees because the disciples are eating grain. They're walking on this path in between these fields, and they're just kind of nonchalantly reaching over, grabbing heads of grain, and they're eating grain. And the Pharisees are outraged because it's it's the Sabbath. So that would have been the same kind of setting. It says, other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up. Since they had no depth of soil, but when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. So rocky soil, there were places, and there are places over there, where the bedrock literally comes up out of the ground, and it's kind of, it's got low spots and high spots. And inevitably, soil, whether it be winds or whatever, ends up in those crevices, And so you have just a little layer of soil like that. And it's rich soil, but when the seed falls on it, it quickly sprouts up, but it has no root. It can't go anywhere. Because it goes down, it hits rock, and it ends up scorched by the sun. So that's the picture. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. They have these patches of thorns over there that are so dense. It's crazy how dense they are. It's a thick, thick patch of thorns, and nothing can grow up in it. It literally chokes out anything that, a, that can try even to, to sprout. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some 100 and some 60 and some 30. Jezreel Valley is, is some of the most fertile ground in the world. It's just, it's amazingly gorgeous. But this idea of a tenfold crop would have been overwhelming for a farmer. You ask any farmer, 10-fold crop, that's like, that's crazy. But uh, a a 30-fold, a 60-fold, a 100-fold? Now we're talking absurdity. This is ridiculous language. It's not possible. This is a form of serious exaggeration. No one could ever expect this kind of outcome. But this is the point that Jesus wants to make. We, we can't expect this from humanity. This is, this is a working of God that produces fruit in a life. So this is the content of the parable. The sower, the seed, and four types of soil. And the picture is you have somebody walking along, pulling seed out of their bag. They scatter it, and some falls in various different places as he goes. So what does it all mean? The disciples certainly wanted to know. They were with Jesus every day. They were hearing his teaching every day. They were enjoying private instruction. They spent every minute of the day with him, and they still were unable to figure it out, even after all of that. Luke adds in his Gospels that the disciples came and asked, what is this parable, what, what, or asked what this parable meant. 
But I'm glad they did. Aren't you? I'm glad they did. It's one of the few parables that actually provides Jesus' exact explanation as to what's going on and what it means. I mean, ultimately, um, for the masses, when you give a parable and you don't give an explanation, it becomes a mystery. You don't really know what's going on. But this, there's no question, because he lays it out. So these these disciples... uh, and we who are sitting here today have no intrinsic ability to, to be able to grasp truth. And we're owed no explanation from God. He doesn't owe us one. But he, by his grace, has lovingly given us explanation. It says, but to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. So we're given these things. So read with me at verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As what was sown in the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. So that's his explanation of the parable. So let's look at this interpretation. Let's look how he interprets this. The sower. Who is the sower? The parable doesn't give us an explanation as to who the sower might be. The story simply says, a sower went out to sow. It doesn't say who it is. Now down in verse 24, it says in another parable, he put... uh, He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in a field. Further down in verse 37, Jesus says uh, this in another parable, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. Certainly, Jesus is the supreme sower. He's the sower of all sowers. So he certainly fits into the context of Jesus speaking to these masses of people about the kingdom. That said, our parable that we're looking at today doesn't specify. Along with Jesus, many sowers have followed over over preceding generations, even exist today. But Jesus is by far the preeminent one, and he is the focal point of our context. Jesus had been sowing seed that entire day. He'd been sowing it. So what is the seed he's spreading? He's sowing seed. What is it? It's it's clearly identified. This one is not even debatable. Verse 19, the word of the kingdom. Verse 20, here's the word. Verse 22, here's the word. Verse 23, here's the word. Mark Mark 4.14, his parable of the sower it even says the sower sows the word. 
Luke 8.11 says the same thing. The seed is the word of God. So Jesus brought truth down from the Father. He brought the truth. Truth that brings life. Truth that brings peace and reconciliation with God, fellowship with God. This is the message of the kingdom. And the current messenger is the one true king, the son of God. You couldn't have a better sower. The other authorities exist by him and for him. There is only one king. And the seed of this king is the message of truth regarding himself. Jesus had been sowing truth, only truth, truth that comes from the Father, life-giving truth. That's what he's sowing. The seed is the word of the truth from God, and the author of the truth has been spreading it. So what are the soils? This is made clear in the middle of verse 19. The words, what has been sown in his heart? The soils represent the heart's of individuals. The issue has always been the heart. A person must hear the truth. The seed must be cast, but it's the condition of the heart of the individual that allows the seed to produce a crop, to produce life. And Jesus describes four different hearts. So let's look at each one of those. It says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand that the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart, this is what's sown along the path. This is a hard heart. It's a hard heart. It is a proud heart that absolutely rejects and resists God altogether, even hates him, realistically. And now Satan is not omnipresent, is he? He can't be all over the world stealing away the word of God and assisting in the heart-hardening process in the lives of millions and billions of people all over the world all at the same time, can he? We can't all say, Satan's picking on me, okay? He's, He's not omnipresent. But the demonic realm and the world system are all working in harmony with Satan's hatred of God. And the efforts to overturn God's glory. Satan, demonic forces, and the world system are influenced, uh, that is influenced by, uh, are, are all working to stop the word of God from taking root in a person's heart. They come and steal it away. Humanism, Darwinism, all the other isms, tirelessly work to harden the hearts of mankind. You can see it societally, even. The efforts to uh, make fun of, diminish, uh, make it seem false, to harden the hearts of individuals. But what's even worse is self-righteousness. This is even more dangerous. It's the worst kind of pride. It's the idea that you are good because of your own behavior. And our world is full of blasphemous, false religions that incorporate either an intrinsic goodness in you or a personal goodness through your works and your efforts. 
that somehow you're good. So in one case, God is not, uh, in one case, God is not there at all. In another case, we work our way up to becoming like God all on our own because we're so good. So this pathway represents a heart that has been constantly pounded by pride, self-love, self-righteousness, and the philosophies of this world that lovingly embrace Satan's lies and outright reject the truth of God. They can't even hear it. Jesus was constantly running into this kind of heart every time he had to deal with the religious elite in Israel. Their hearts were so rock hard. No life, no truth was able to sink in no matter what message Jesus spoke, no matter what he said. It didn't penetrate. Even the awesome miracles he was performing had no effect on him. didn't soften anything. So that's the, the hard-packed soil. So what is the rocky ground in verse 20 and 21? As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the world or word, immediately he falls away. This is the shallow person. This is a person led by feeling, essentially. This is a person so self-absorbed, so self-loving, they're only concerned with what makes them feel good and what benefits them in some earthly sense. And notice, they receive the word with joy. There's great joy. Folks, a person receiving the message of truth with joy brings delight to the saints, but joy is no determiner of genuine faith. Being excited about the gospel and being excited about Jesus initially is no guarantee of a genuine heart and a love for God. Many of people have walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, walked away, praising God with joy, only to walk away from everything completely, given the right circumstances. They just walk away. This, this doesn't mean we don't rejoice when a pers- with a person when this happens, or that we don't give them every benefit and treat them like a brother and sister in Christ. But it does mean we should be careful about strong words of affirmation. We need to be careful about telling a new believer, you are definitely saved by God and you will never be rejected by him. Because we don't know. We have no idea. I made this mistake personally many times in the past. So zealous to reach out with the gospel and to evangelize. One occasion I told a younger younger guy about the gospel, and he responded positively. Even prayed and asked God for forgiveness, and, and I told him, you're a child of God, and you're secure. I told him that at that time. But going forward, he refused to repent of his lifestyle and he didn't want to follow Christ, and he never had any interest in church, but he thought he was a Christian because I had convinced him of that. I now encourage professing believers to do so, to pursue Christ, to love Christ, but I reserve strong affirmation until I've seen 
faith exhibited in their life over a period of time. I see a persistence in their love for Christ and a zealousness to repent and turn from sin and and selfishness and pride and want to follow after Christ. I attended a church many years ago as well that that preached a sermon, the pastor preached a sermon from Philippians 4.8, and I use that word pastor loosely. The, The verse says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And he used this passage to formulate a message on the power of positive thinking. And his conclusion was, if you think this way, in a year from now, you'll have a better marriage. You'll have a better job. You'll have kids that are more obedient. You know, life will be good. You just got to think this way. That was the message. And when the message was all over, he gave a gospel presentation. And this was his presentation. Does anyone want to accept Jesus? Raise your hand. And that was the gospel. This feeds on people's earthly desires, their felt needs. And as he looked around the auditorium, he saw everybody with their hand up, and he said, yes, sir, Jesus is coming into your life right now. That was his response to every person in there that had their hands raised. He looked around and affirmed every person that had their hands raised. Could it be that somebody genuinely placed their faith in Christ at that point, trusted in him fully? It's possible, but his message sure didn't make it probable. This was a corrupt gospel. But these people walked away with joy, feeling they had received life. But the masses have also responded to the true gospel in the same fashion. Even a true gospel, somebody can raise their hand, oh yes, I believe. I can't count the number of times I've witnessed people walk away during my lifetime, and I am certain you could testify to the same kind of thing in your experiences. Jesus' ministry was filled with people who responded with superficial faith, and they were all excited. In John chapter 2, Jesus is in Jerusalem during the Passover, and it says, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. What is it saying? They believed, but they really didn't believe. And he was not entrusting himself to them. John 6, Jesus creates food out of nothing and feeds thousands of people. Wow, this is amazing. The next day, the people are frantically trying to find him again. They're looking everywhere. And when they find him across the sea there, Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father God has set his seal. Jesus then confronts them at the end of that chapter with very hard realities about what it means to truly believe. And guess what they did? They walked away. Never followed him again. They said, we're out of here. They couldn't accept hard reality. 
that, that didn't fit into their narrative that they had created. They didn't want Jesus. They wanted what Jesus could give them. This is the shallow soil. This is a person who is, has a shallow heart, a shallow faith. They receive it with joy. They maybe even endure for a time. But Jesus says that any true difficult, difficulty associated with following Christ makes them leave. What about the thorny ground? Verse 22, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. It's a person who is so engaged with this world that uh, what God offers is choked out. The truth of God had no chance in the midst of such a life. What is spiritual, what is by faith, what the eye cannot perceive does not compare with the tangible things that one can acquire in the world. So careers, wealth, lands, homes, popularity, esteem, worldly achievements, hobbies, maybe even your good health, these are all the things that I can see, that I can experience. What is more, they are constantly concerned about preserving their earthly benefits or increasing them in order to maintain a false sense of security. Some people are concerned about preserving their wealth. Some are concerned about their cars. Some, it's their jobs. Others, it's in keeping their perfect physical condition. Jesus experiences this in his ministry. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus is about to set out on a journey, and it says a man ran up to him, fell before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Ah, great, a convert. He truly believes. Someone who believes. This is great. But Jesus knew the man's heart. And he said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all that you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Jesus knew what the issue was, and he hit it. And it says, but at these words, he was saddened, and he went away grieving, because he is one who owned much property. I'm not, I don't want to give that up. Jesus isn't worth it. The man walked away from the Son of God and the life that was offered him because he loved this world more. So folks, you can't possibly compare the eternal riches of having Christ with having everything go perfectly for you in this world. There's no comparison. Better to suffer the loss of all things, even your life, than to forfeit Christ. That's a bad investment. But for the weedy soil, their love for this world chokes out the ability of the word of God to even bring life. There's one last soil, verse 23. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case, a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. This is the soil that God has tilled by the Spirit of God. It's been turned upside down, it's been softened, it's been exposed. This person is humbled and broken, ready to hear the truth. And look at the results. 
As was said earlier, a tenfold crop would have been an unthinkable thing. But 30, 60, 100-fold, that was simply absurd to think of. Still, that's what happened to those who are children of God. Not everyone bears the same amount. That's, that's the illustration there. Everyone doesn't bear the same amount, but those whose life bears fruit, it still bears an immense amount that can't be ignored. There's an immensity of faith in bearing the fruit of righteousness. If there's no fruit, there should be some concern. Those with a genuine heart of love and faith, they love Christ more than everything else. They love Christ even more than self. They want Christ. They will love his righteousness and they want to walk in his righteousness. They'll desire the will of God above personal benefit. They'll trust God through even the darkest pain and suffering that this world can dish out. This is what that person's like. And notice that the seed only flourishes and grows to maturity uh, and produces fruit in one of the four soils, just one. We're back to where we started. True faith only exists in a minority. The others either outright reject the truth or they're deceived in the thinking that they have life. That life dries up. It's choked out. They never produce lasting fruit. So how do, we, how do we respond? We have to ask ourselves, what did Jesus? why did Jesus preach this parable to the crowd? What sort of response was he intending to produce in the people? What was he looking for? The parable is one of the most well-known. Everybody knows the parable of the sower, soil, or the parable of the sower, Actually, it would be rightfully entitled Parable of the Soils, wouldn't it? It's really about the hearts. It's found in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's, it's really well known. It's longer than most of the parables. It's one of the few also that, like we said, Jesus offers an explanation. So it's really popular. But why did he choose this one in this setting? Why did he do that? It seems this parable was spoken in this setting, in this time, because the masses that were listening were a mixed bag of everything he was saying. It was perfectly fit for the occasion. He was preaching and describing them. He was saying, you are part of this parable, plug yourself in. There were Pharisees and spiritual elite who were so hardened they couldn't possibly receive anything Jesus said. You had those who wanted their felt needs met and really didn't understand who he was, or maybe they just didn't care as long as they were receiving what they really wanted. Jesus, for them, is not really an end. He's a means to an end. He also had those who were curious, possibly looking to see if he was the Messiah, or perhaps they were just caught up in the excitement and excited to be part of something substantial that was going on. But within the crowd there stood a small minority who saw who he was and they believed and the 12 were among them or the 11. Everyone there on that day was part of the, sto- part of the story, but so are we part of that story. 
So is all of humanity, part of that story. Jesus was graciously confronting this crowd with a message of self-examination. It was, it was a tremendous grace of God that told this hard story. It showed loving grace to all. Grace, encouraging those who believed, giving great encouragement, but it also warned all those who were self-deceived. And he, and he didn't need organ music. He didn't need mood lighting. He didn't need an altar call. Jesus simply lovingly confronts with a message of truth that should cause every individual to step back and look at their own heart. Look at where I'm at. As Paul said in, in, to the Corinthians, he said, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. The problem of unfruitfulness in Jesus' parable did not rest in the seed. The seed is the perfect and enduring word of God that brings life. That seed never fails. And the problem wasn't in the sower who was spreading the seed. The problem in this parable is the soil. It is the self-deceived heart of man. Jesus wants you to look at yourself to see if your heart may be hard toward God. If you've never felt the weight of your own sin and guilt before God and been broken over that, don't comfort yourself. If you do not desperately love Jesus Christ and desire him over all things that this world offers, don't speak comfort to yourself. If bearing fruit for Christ is not your greatest desire, don't speak comfort to yourself. You better stop and look at yourself. That's the message. There's many who think that they are good soil and bearing much fruit, but upon closer examination are actually fixated with themselves and with this world. For these, when, when faith and the Christian life is not giving them what they want or is hindering their worldly pursuits, it's easy to abandon it. Others abandon their perceived love for Christ when things are hard. They don't want sacrifice, they want fulfillment. For those who are either hard, shallow, or choked by this world, the end is judgment. That's the result of those soils. But for those, um, so, so how should a person respond if they think they're one of those three soils? What should they do? What, what should happen? You need to plead with God that he would take a plow to your heart and break up the hardness. You need to beg God that he would till up your deceit, deceitful, self-worshipping heart and purge you from the love you have of your sin. You need God to do that for you. You need to beg him. Ask him to redeem your shallow, self-loving life. Only God can redeem. God is the only one who can give ears to hear. Otherwise, this parable will have very little effect on you. Very little. 
just as it did in the day when Jesus preached it? What about those who believe? What about those who really love Christ above all things? You look at yourself, I, I, I do love Christ. I do love righteousness. I want to follow him. I want to honor him. First, Jesus' message should be of huge encouragement to you. It should be a tremendous encouragement. It should cause you great joy no matter what your circumstances in life happen to be. It should be in great encouragement that you have that you are a true child of God and not one who falls away because of trials or the love of this world. Let me read to you again from 1 Peter, our introduction. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. These folks are losing everything. These, the context appears like they're losing everything for following Christ. Many even suffered physically, but this created great joy because it was testing and proving their faith. They loved Christ above all things, and it was being tested and proven. There's a lot of joy in that. It demonstrates the genuineness of their faith, that they were good soil producing a good, fruitful crop. The result was that they could confidently expect all the glories that Peter was describing there. That's mine. That's mine. As Peter goes on, he says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Jesus' parable should be a great encouragement to the saints. But what do we do about those that we think may have a heart of unbelieving? that want to associate with the church, want to associate with everything that we're doing, but you're concerned that they really have an unbelieving heart. I mean, what about someone in the church who doesn't seem to bear fruit? Should we judge them, cast them out, condemn them? Well, there's all uh, uh, extenuating circumstances at times, but no critical spirit or impatience or having a judgmental spirit, have no place among us. But we do have to be responsible to lovingly exhort or correct them. That should be our overall attitude, no matter what the circumstance. Is care and concern for that individual. However, we have to deal with it. Remember these words in Hebrews 3, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, 
as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So Jesus is manifesting the mercy of God as he taught this parable of the sower because he's exposing unbelief. It it wasn't spiteful. It was hard truth, but it wasn't a hateful thing. It was love. And it is the same love that we should be compelled to express to each other as well. And it's the same kind of love that should cause us to exhort one another and encourage one another to look to Christ. How important our fellowship with one another is. On that afternoon, on the North Shore Galilee, there was only a small minority who really understood who Jesus was. And they loved him more than anything else. The question is, we must all answer that same question. Do I love him as well? That's the question. So, Father, we're so thankful for our Savior, who is also a master teacher, who so skillfully and eloquently exposed the hearts of man. Father, we need you. Without your intervention, we are blind and deaf fools who cannot see our true condition. So we pray for your grace that you would expose hardened hearts, expose those who are growing in a shallow soil, ready to dry up. Lord, I pray for those who are in a weedy soil, who are being choked by the cares of this world. Lord, I pray that you would till the soils of man and that you would produce the fruit of faith that is enduring and unquestionable. Lord, I pray that you would also create joy in the hearts of those who truly love Christ and that it would be a motivation going through this that they would love him all the more and that they would rejoice all the more. Father, we thank you for the masterful way in which you have exposed our hearts and I pray, Lord, that you would help us to deal honestly with ourselves, that we could all know the joy of loving Christ. We pray this in Christ's name.